If you've been around reasonable theology for any length of time, you'll have gathered that I greatly admire C.H. Spurgeon and share resources from his extensive ministry often. So it is a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Jeff Chang to the podcast. Chang is curator of the Spurgeon Library at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's the author of a new book about Spurgeon called Spurgeon the Pastor, Recovering a Biblical and Theological Vision for Ministry. In this conversation, we'll talk about how Chang became academically interested in Spurgeon, the purpose of the Spurgeon Library, what Spurgeon was like as a pastor of a local church, and why he was able to avoid the pitfalls of being a celebrity pastor of a large congregation. Along the way, we'll discuss how Spurgeon was able to accomplish so much and how this larger-than-life figure from church history can still be an encouragement to pastors of small churches. Enjoy the conversation. See the show notes at reasonabletheology.org slash Spurgeon. As we start our conversation, could you share a little bit more about what is the Spurgeon Library? What is its uh, mission? And what is your role at the Spurgeon Library? Yeah. Uh, when I was offered the job of being the curator of the Spurgeon Library, I had to look up what the word curator meant. Uh, the Spurgeon Library, so it's a lot of people get it confused. They sometimes think that it's uh, a collection of all of Spurgeon's writings and books and publications. But in fact, that's not what it is. It's actually his pastoral library. So, so 6,000 volumes uh, that he owned, books of theology, Bible commentaries, uh, church history, books on preaching, books on hymnody, uh, and, and books of general interest. These are all books that Spurgeon used. You know, if you think about a pastor, uh, the role that his books play, th- these were the tools of his ministry. Uh, these were sort of what equipped him to preach, to, to pastor his people. Um, and all those books, strangely, are residing in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, you know, in 1906, uh, or, or after he died, um, his family put the books up for sale and, and nobody in the UK wanted them. Uh, and it was the Missouri Baptists who bought them in 1906. They bought them at something like 50 cents a volume. It's it just an incredible price. And, uh, and, and they came over, uh, and they resided at William Jewell college for about a century. And then in 2006, Midwestern seminary was able to purchase that collection we were we had to pay a little more than fifty cents on the volume, but still we got a great deal, and uh, yeah. And so hard, they reside to today. In this, they, they're in this beautiful space on the campus of Midwestern Seminary. Uh, it's you should come and see it. It's it's part museum uh, that tells the story of Spurgeon's life and ministry, uh, but it's also part research center. So people who are wanting to study Spurgeon more in depth, uh, scholars come all the time to access our resources, and uh, and we're glad to have them. Yeah, that's excellent. And as you and I were talking before, uh, definitely intend to get down there. It's been on my on my list for a while to do that and, and hopefully get to peek at some of uh, some of Spurgeon's things. It's really difficult to imagine that as popular as he continues to be, that at the time uh, the best buyer they could find was shipping those books uh, to the Midwest of the United States uh, and residing in in. In a college there, I'm so glad that you guys were able to make that purchase and make those things available. And and you guys have some, uh, I don't know if artifacts is the right word, but you've got other things in addition to books hanging out at the Spurgeon Library too, don't you? Yeah, that's right. I mean, artifacts is a good Protestant word. Some others might say relics, uh, but we'll stick with artifacts. Oh, let's, yeah, hopefully not. We <laughs> we always right. want to uh, watch that fine line before we get into that's hagiography right. and things. Uh, yeah, no, we have some wonderful pieces. Uh, you know, we have his original writing desk. Uh, we have, we have pews from the chapel where he was converted, the artillery street chapel there in Colchester. Um, we've, and perhaps our most famous piece is, uh, 
supposedly a, a cigar that was found in his pocket after he died. Uh, and you can tell it's slightly used. Um, <clears throat> anyways, yeah, so those are, that's just a, a little foretaste. But yes, there's, there's lots of interesting artifacts that each of them tell a, a story about his life. Wow. So, so hypothetically, some scientists could do a, like a Jurassic Park scenario. Oh boy, that would be scary. That would be scary. We'll, we'll avoid that as, as best we can. So how did you get into Spurgeon anyways, especially from an academic standpoint? Uh, many people share an affinity for Spurgeon. They like to read his books. They, they're, they're quoting him on uh, Twitter and Instagram, but uh, you, you've really gone uh, much deeper than that to where your academic career is is so much uh, focused on Charles Spurgeon. How, do, how did that right. come to be? Yeah, it's a strange story. I mean, I, I'm, uh, my parents are from Taiwan. I don't have any connections to London. Um, you know, but my parents immigrated uh, from from Taiwan, you know, in the early 80s. So I, I, uh, I grew up in Texas. Um, so it's strange that, you know, this uh, Texas, Taiwanese, kid would be watching over Spurgeon's books. Um, <clears throat> I was, I was a pastor, uh, in, uh, in Portland, Oregon, when I began to work on my doctoral studies at Midwestern seminary. Uh, and I reached out to, to a, a pastoral mentor, asked him, Hey, what should I be working on for my dissertation? Mm. And he responded right away. Hey, you should look at Spurgeon's ecclesiology. You know, th- he himself was a, a Spurgeon fan and he knew that this was sort of an under-researched area. And as I looked at it, he was exactly right. Um, th- this was an area of his life that was so central to who he was, you know, the, the local church, pastoral ministry, and yet kind of easily overlooked, you know, as people went on to talk about his preaching or his, you know, philanthropic ministries, uh, the pastor's college, all kinds of other things. So, yeah, as I began to dig, in, dig into it, it was just fascinating to see uh, this 19th century London pastor pastoring kind of the first, I think, mega church in history, mm-hmm. uh, and yet seeking to apply kind of faithful kind of Baptist ecclesiology to his local church. So I began those studies in 2016. Um, I graduated from Midwestern in 2020. I finished my dissertation then. Uh, and it's at that point that the school approached me about serving in this capacity. And as my wife and I prayed about it, we, we saw the Lord's hand in it. What a unique opportunity this was. And so I've been on the faculty at Midwestern since 2020. Uh, so, you know, my expertise doesn't run from, you know, my, my childhood or anything like, anything like that. Yeah. Uh, but one of the fun things about Spurgeon Scholarship is that there's a lot of good guys out there. Uh, a lot of guys who are more experienced, who have been doing writing on Spurgeon for, for many years now, and a lot of young guys who are up and coming. Uh, and it's been so much fun to do the scholarship in sort of a, a collegial environment where, where we've been able to collaborate and, and kind of share notes and that sort of thing. Yeah, that is great. I've had the opportunity to speak with Ray Rhodes a couple of times. Yeah, exactly. And I know I'm sure you guys have connected uh, several times as he's doing his work. And he's uh, off to England right now, I think, or soon will be yeah, for will uh, be. another biography on Spurgeon. So looking That's forward right. to that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. a lot of good scholarship out there. Just out of curiosity, and this is a hard one. I don't know if I could answer it, but do you recall what your first exposure to Spurgeon would have been? Was there a, a just a quote you came across or a book that grabbed your attention? Uh, probably the the most distinct memory, kind of first exposure to, exposure to Spurgeon, was listening to John Piper give his sort of sermon biographies. Do you remember those? Sure. Yep. He yeah, did? he used yeah. to do a biogra- biographical lecture at each yeah. of the pastors' conferences. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so he did one on Spurgeon. That was probably my one of my first introductions to him. Oh, great. 
Yeah, absolutely. So you have your own contribution to uh, the study of Spurgeon. As you said, it's focused on his ecclesiology, which is just really his his theological view of the church, and it is called Spurgeon the Pastor. Uh, so what you mentioned how there is a bit of a gap in in the academic study of this area. What gap are you trying to fill with this book? What unique angle does it take focusing on Charles Spurgeon? If you enjoy the sermons and written works of C.H. Spurgeon, I encourage you to check out the all-new chspurgeon.com. Here you'll find free, unabridged sermon audio delivered with the dynamic of live preaching, articles written by and about the Prince of Preachers, a chronological bibliography of all his books, and much more. This will be a growing library of Spurgeon-related resources to help you in your walk with the Lord. So check it out at chspurgeon.com. Yeah, so, you know, as, as I began to look into this topic uh, and, and look at the existing literature on it out there, first of all, I noticed that there wasn't a, a focused study on it in existence at all. So that was interesting. Uh, there have been, you know, maybe one or two sort of journal length articles that were written, but nothing kind of extended. And then second of all, as I read people's comments on Spurgeon's view of the local church, you know, a lot of, some, some of the scholars tended to downplay uh, sort of minimize his view of the local church. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tended to put the emphasis more on his view of of kind of the universal church, kind of denominationalism or, or, or associating with other evangelical churches. But they really didn't bring out kind of his distinctly Baptist uh, ecclesiological convictions. Um, as I as I so as I began to do my research, um, I wanted to examine whether or not that was accurate, and uh, and I. It turns out, man, Spurgeon is um, this old school, 17th century, 16th century, well, I don't know about 16th century, 17th, 18th century Baptist living in the 19th century uh, during a time when Baptists were beginning to kind of loosen their ecclesiological ecclesiological convictions. Um, So Spurgeon was just super clear on the importance of church membership, regenerate church membership. Uh, He kept up church discipline at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Uh, he implemented elders, uh, even when Baptists had moved away, moved away from a plurality of elders. So, I mean, he was just thinking very carefully about uh, kind of pastoral ecclesiology. And so it was fun to bring all that out. Yeah. So you mentioned he's got kind of this uh, 17th, 18th century theological mindset. He's pastoring in the 19th and really pastoring a church, like you said, is really a mega church, which kind of fits in our mind, a, a 20th century church model. He'd have thousands of people come and hear him. Uh, and I think whenever we, we see or hear churches like that, we, I think, rightly have some pause and a little bit of um, apprehension. <laughs> Yeah. But we really don't see that from Spurgeon where he's falling into some of these same uh, ditches that so many do that are really chasing numbers and stuff. Why do you think that is? Why was uh, Spurgeon not a a mega church pastor, even though he was pastoring a church that numbered in the thousands? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, the argument that I make in my book is that he was fundamentally driven by biblical convictions, right? So he understood that when it came to our view of church membership, when it came to, for example, the the, the government of the church, you know, and his view was he was a congregationalist, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he, um, when it came to things like elders and deacons, he rooted all those practices in biblical uh, grounding, in, in biblical convictions. So he saw these things as being taught from Scripture. And therefore, um, because they weren't sort of just merely pragmatic, uh, he remained fixed on them, even as his church, you know, exploded yeah. uh, in terms of size. So, for example, you know, you've got thousands, you know, hundreds of people, let's say, joining the church uh, every few months. Uh, if you're a congregationalist, you believe that it's the local church, the, the, the people who, who have the final authority to bring those people into membership. Um, so, and yet, if you have that many people joining the church, what must your church meetings be like, right? I mean, how right. in the world do you make that work? What's fascinating to see is that for every person that joined the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and I think I, I added it up where over the course of his 38 years, something like 14,000 people joined the church. So even though church membership was only 5,000, only 5,000, um, in fact, over 14,000 people went through that membership process. And yet for every one of those uh, applicants, they had a congregational vote. The congregation voted to bring them in. He didn't take any shortcuts. Uh, what that meant was they, they were having like three, four, five members meetings every month just wow. to be able to process all these people through uh, that membership process. Why go through all that trouble? It would be so much easier if the elders just did it all themselves. You know, After all, they were the ones making the recommendation. Uh, they were doing a lot of the legwork. At the end of the day, it was because Spurgeon believed no, when we look at the New Testament, it's the local church that makes those kinds of decisions, right? It's the local church that puts people out of the, out of the membership. It's the local church that baptizes and receives them into membership. Um, and so being convinced of that, he just didn't want to take any shortcuts. Uh, so I, I argue that when you, when you see how he pastored his church, yeah, he was driven fundamentally by biblical conviction, not by pragmatism. So you've got a guy whose who's preaching is so tremendously popular that people are, are coming you know, from all over, thousands of people, 14,000 plus members, as you mentioned over the years. And on a Sunday, he might be talking to two, three plus thousand people. Some might expect to find that Spurgeon was really just the preacher uh, and didn't fulfill out some of those roles that we associated with pastoring. But I'm guessing that's not what you found in your study of, of what he was like as a pastor. He wasn't just the preacher, was he? No, he wasn't. Um, so, so he begins pastoring in 1854. Uh, and he doesn't call a sort of associate pastor or a co-pastor until 1869. So those first 15 years, I mean, he's the solo pastor, basically. He's got elders and deacons all around him, for sure. But boy, he is chairing every members meeting. He is uh, attending every membership interview. Um, he's a busy guy. And it's a good thing that he brought on a, an associate pastor in 1869. Otherwise, he might not have lasted as long as he did, though he didn't even last that long, really. Uh, but no, he, he, was, he was doing way more than just the preaching, right? He was, uh, uh, again, leading his elders and deacons, thinking with them about how to do pastoral care, uh, organizing committees for, for ministry, and then actually meeting with people for pastoral care, you know, um, meeting people for membership interviews, uh, working on conflicts in the church. I mean, all those kinds of things. Uh, he, he was more than just occupying a preaching station. He was actually the pastor of a local church. And I think one of the things that influences that is just the fact that even before he showed up in London and was this megachurch pastor, he was this uh, Baptist village pastor, you know, there in, in the village of Waterbeach. That's how he got 
his pastoral training. And it's in that context, I think, where he really kind of solidifies, yeah, this is what a church is to be. And here's how a pastor is to function. And so he takes all that into with him into London. And he's pretty consistent throughout his ministry in terms of carrying on just kind of a basic pastoral ministry, except you're pastoring the largest church in the world. Right. And I was going to ask that. So do you see uh, much change or uh, growth in what what his view of the church was, his view of the role of a pastor was in going from this small church in Water Beach to to this big church in London, that, like you said, the, the biggest church in London. Do we see a big change there or was the key to his success in London that he stayed the same as he was in Water Beach? I think we do see some changes. I mean, I think the the, the, the sort of principal components are all the same. Uh, he, he would have practiced the same way of church membership, of discipline, you know, he he would have thought he have sought to uh, care for his people pastorally in the same ways. Um, one of the big changes, though, I think that we see happening in London is that Spurgeon begins to trust his fellow leaders more. You know, so for example, um, he, he, for the first seven years of his ministry, he basically chairs all the members' meetings of the church, and. Uh, and if he's sick and unable to do that, they just don't have members meetings that month, you know, or whatever. Um, but as he goes along, he realizes, man, I can't do this all myself. So he allows, you know, some of his more senior deacons to also chair those meetings or elders. Uh, he begins to allow his associate pastors to do it. So I think he's learning to pull together a team around him and rely on them more and more as he goes along. But I think he always also realized the unique role that he played as the lead pastor. So he, he could never fully, fully just sort of relinquish his responsibilities. Um, I think he carried a lot of that burden kind of throughout his ministries. But no, I think there's there's a remarkable consistency that I think would would exist between Water Beach and London. It's hard to say. London, Water Beach was only two years, you know, so it's a short pastorate. Uh, but as far as I can tell, there, it's, there's a, a, definitely a line of continuity. Now, one of the interesting things about Spurgeon, I think, is that he is at once both encouraging and uh, at the same time very discouraging. <laughs> in that you see the output that that this man is doing in the you know the hundreds of letters that he is uh, writing during the week and responding with all this correspondence, and he's doing all these meetings. And uh, unlike some other figures in church history, he's not neglecting his spouse and his children and sacrificing them on the altar of ministry. And he's, he's got the orphanage and he's got the pastor's college and he's preaching to thousands. And um, it can be overwhelming to someone who's looking to Spurgeon as this example. And then it's, it's exhausting to read about him to go, man, that can never be me. So I guess my question is what can the pastor of 50 people learn and take away from this pastor of, of 5,000 people on a Sunday? Yeah. Well, I appreciate that word of caution. I mean, you're exactly right that um, if anybody tries to copy Spurgeon, they'll probably end up killing themselves. Uh, I think Spurgeon basically killed himself with with the overwork that he put on himself. Uh, I mean, his if if we talk about blind spots, I mean, one blind spot I would say would be that that general pattern of overwork uh, to the point of illness, and then being forced to you know sort of retreat in order to right. recover his health. I mean, that was the, the general pattern of his entire life. He, he would basically overwork himself and therefore need to take time off. Um, yeah, so don't do that. Uh, don't copy that pattern. Uh, for, the, for the pastor with 
a, a church of 50. Here's, here's where Spurgeon, I think, could be encouraging. Um, number one, uh, don't underestimate what God can do. Because when Spurgeon shows up in London, his church is about 50. And he is a country boy, 19-year-old. Um, he's not the sort of college-educated, trained, intellectual kind of elite preacher, you know, that, that Londoners were used to hearing. And yet the Lord takes this, this teenager uh, and does something remarkable, right? I mean, I think it's a period of, in church history that we, that we like to call a revival, uh, that, that the Lord uses this unlikely instrument to bring about this remarkable ministry. Um, so, so take courage for that. I mean, the Lord can do surprising, unexpected things. And we should, though we never ex- you know, sort of think that we can fabricate that, um, and yet when we read a story like Spurgeon, that should cause us to pray like, oh God, you know, let me see something of your, of your, your power at work here in this little church, right? Uh, let's, let's see sinners convicted of their sins. Let's see families built up in the gospel. Um, we should, we should pray and we should, uh, take heart from Spurgeon's story. Uh, the, the second thing then uh, that I would highlight, and I, I really try to bring this, bring this out in my book is, you know, in Spurgeon holding to biblical convictions, uh, what should draw our attention, uh, are not, um, most the results that happen in his ministry, but his sort of dogged faithfulness, you know, even as the church was becoming larger and larger and the work was becoming more and more difficult, he held fast. He didn't give way to pragmatism. Um, he held, held fast to biblical convictions and, uh, and he continued to pastor and order the church as a pastor should do. And so you, with your 50, man, you, you hold fast to what the Bible says, uh, what the Bible teaches about what the church is to be, what the church is to be about. And uh, you keep being faithful in that and leave the results to God. Yeah, I think it's easy for people to see the, the great success that he had in his ministry. And you think, well, of course, he, he was Charles Spurgeon. Yeah. Uh, forgetting and maybe not even being aware that he shows up into London, uh, a young man, untrained, uh, really unpolished and a bit of a hayseed. And he was mocked pretty relentlessly as being not up, uh, not up to the challenge uh, and certainly not up to the standards that people had in that day, especially in that city. And and yet God used him yes. in great ways. So he really was uh, in many ways, fairly ordinary that was enabled by God to do extraordinary work for the ministry. And I think it's easy to just see, um, kind of this larger than life figure without realizing he was, he was just a man and he uh, probably many times felt inadequate, particularly in those early years along the way. So, And particularly as he encountered illness and depression and all kinds of challenges in his home and his church. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Was there anything that surprised you as you were trying to get to know Spurgeon as a pastor more than just as, as a, a preacher or a commentator or even a theologian? Surprise me. Let's see. Well, one of the fun things about doing historical research is um, you're constantly being surprised. You know, you're, you're trying to go there with an open mind and, uh, and trying to discover things that haven't been seen before. And yeah, it, you know, going into the folks at the Metropolitan Tabernacle were so kind. They, they let me spend time in their archives and, and look at those old minute books from, from church meetings or elders meetings or deacons meetings. 
And, uh, you know, the, the most surprising thing is, hey, you know, I'm a pastor too. I know, you know, I know what it's like to deal with the challenges of, of pastoring a local church. And it's just fun to see Spurgeon dealing with the same things, right? They, yeah. They're sitting around elders meetings and the vast majority of it, they're just talking about how to care for, for Joe and how to care for Susie. And have, has anybody heard from, from Ellen recently? Oh, that elder forgot to follow up with her. Okay, let's table that for next week. You know, I mean, they're just like, this is the kind of things that me and my elders would talk about all the time. Yeah, right? not, nothing new under the sun is really, it's, it's, it's heart work and you're dealing with people. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Now, uh, as as folks are seeing your books on the shelf now and Spurgeon the Pastor, I think those with a general interest in Spurgeon would be quick to pick up a copy. Um, could you disabuse people of the idea that this is just a book for pastors? What would what would the non-pastor or the churchgoer gain from reading a book about Spurgeon as a pastor? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, if you're a Christian, uh, if you believe that all of the Bible is meant for you, and it's, it's important for you to know, it's useful for your own godliness and, and holiness, then you understand that the Bible talks a lot about the church, and the Bible talks a lot about what pastors are to, to be and to do. Um, and so you have a responsibility, even if you're not a pastor, to understand something of those things, right? Um, because it's part of God's word to you. And so in that sense, uh, this book is just one attempt from church history uh, to give you a conversation partner. As you think about what the church is, uh, church is to be, uh, what pastors are to be, um, here's one example of one, I think, faithful brother uh, who sought to model that, uh, who sought to lead his church in that. Uh, so, so as you read that, even if you're just a lay Christian, I hope you find it interesting and helpful, uh, and and that it would equip you to engage your own local church in in helpful ways. So, yes, I commend even even. Uh, this book, Spurgeon the Pastor, to to all lay Christians, and and uh, at the very least, good gift for your pastor. So <laughs> uh, think of, of picking picking him up a copy as well. So uh, as you if you picture your reader having gone through the book, obviously they're going to come away with a bit of a, a greater appreciation and understanding of who Spurgeon was beyond maybe what they're familiar with reading already. What other kind of key takeaways do you hope the reader is going to get from this book on Spurgeon as a pastor? Well, Spurgeon stands in the stream of, of Baptists, right? Who, who, um, yeah, who have been around since uh, the English Reformation, and so and they and the Baptists are connected all the way through the Reform stream, all the way through down to Geneva to Calvin, uh, and obviously Calvin there in the Reformation is connected to kind of the church history before him. Um, so 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 much of what you're going to see in this book is simply just how Christians have thought about the church for for many many years. Uh, certainly among those Christians, particularly Baptists, they have a few distinct convictions about the church. That's going to be reflected in the book. Um, but, but most of all, when we talk about these, these labels, I mean, I think what Baptists would argue is that, hey, we're, just, we're not trying to argue for like the Baptist way. We're trying to argue for what we see in the scriptures. You know, this is what we are convinced is taught in the New Testament about the church. And here's how we want to implement that. You know, so Spurgeon just gives you kind of one way at getting at this sort of historic stream of thinking about the church and the pastorate. And so I hope for, for our readers that uh, as, they, as they're encouraged by Spurgeon, they're also encouraged to know that, yeah, this is, this, this is Christ, a Christian trying to live faithfully uh, what we see in the New Testament. 
Yeah. So at the end of the day, it is it is a book about Christ's church uh, right. through through the lens of how Spurgeon led in in by by many metrics a very successful pastoral ministry. That's right. That's right. And I hope as you read that that man that this this would not cause you to like go back to your pastor and you know be angry about something like hey why aren't we doing it like this or whatever. No, but most of all, it would cause you to love the church more, uh, and then from there, you know, be thankful to God for the gift of the local church, and then from there, pray about ways in which you might be able to contribute towards the health and the faithfulness of your own local church. Yeah, because certainly Spurgeon would be the first to um, just really commend those who came alongside and labored alongside him. We mentioned those deacons, those elders, many others, and uh, we can't all be a Spurgeon, but maybe you can be uh, a help to, to your local pastor and this book can help you do that well. So where can folks go one to learn more about you and your ministry at uh, the Spurgeon library, but also to pick up a copy of Spurgeon, the pastor. Yeah. So uh, our Spurgeon library website, Spurgeon.org. Feel free to check that out. We've got all kinds of digital resources. There's a whole digital library of Spurgeon's works on there. Um, We have a a blog. Uh, Also check us out on social media. Uh, All those links should be on the website. Um, I'm also on Twitter. You can follow me there if you'd like. Uh, if you want to purchase my new book, uh, it's being published at B&H Publishing. So if you Google for that, that'll come up. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon or, or Lifeway.com. I think it's currently sold out on Amazon, um, which is good news, but kind of awkward too. But I think it's still in stock on Lifeway. So if anybody wants to pick it up, they can do it there. Very good. And we'll be sure to link to all those things, the Spurgeon Library, where to pick up a copy of the book, maybe maybe a couple backup links to pick up a that's copy right. of the book. I'm sure that's uh, an exciting problem to have as right. as an author, um, but also maybe a bit of a frustrating one too when when people aren't able to pick up a copy of the book. So maybe that's how Spurgeon felt when you know they always ran out of room when people were trying to listen to him. You know, they, there weren't enough seats in the building. That's right. Very encouraging. But at the end of the day, there's people outside that I would very much like to hear this. That's right. That's right. Yeah, well, you can check those things out at the show notes at reasonabletheology.org. Our guest on this episode has been Jeff Chang. He is the curator of the Spurgeon Library out there at the Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, also the author of the new book, Spurgeon the Pastor. So I encourage you to check that out. And thank you so much for joining me and having this conversation about the Prince of Preachers. So good to be with you. Thank you, Clay. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the Reasonable Theology podcast, go to reasonabletheology.org slash subscribe and get the weekly email. Each week I send out the latest article or podcast episode, and each email also includes a helpful definition to expand your theological vocabulary, a beautiful painting depicting a scene from scripture or church history, a musical selection to enrich your day, as well as the best book deal I've found that week to add trusted resources to your library. Try it out at reasonabletheology.org slash subscribe.